So Isaiah accepts his commission even before knowing what it was or what it would mean. Notice that. He says, here I am, send me, before the Lord tells him, okay, now here's what you're going to do. He doesn't know what he's going to do, but he's seen the Lord. He has been touched by the fire of forgiveness. And so he says, I'm ready to go. Number seven in your notes, if you're tracking these things, a commission is established. Here's the commission, and you might recognize it. Verse 9. The Lord said, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. What? Doesn't God want His people to return? Doesn't He want them to be healed? Of course He does. In fact, it's implied in the phrasing of this, of this commission. The implication is this is what He wants. But the implication is also the more you preach to them, the more they're going to turn away from the very thing that I hold for them, for the very thing I hope for them. The reality is deaf ears, blind eyes, and dull hearts are the result of their sin and rebellion. And this is what you're going to get, Isaiah. Here's your commission. Go and preach, but no one's going to listen. Go preach, but no one's going to see what you're trying to say. Go preach, but there will be no perception in the heart. They're not going to get it. There's your commission, now go. Did I just say, here I am, send me? Actually, what I meant to say, that's it. By the way, God doesn't ask Isaiah to do anything he himself wasn't already doing. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 1, the Lord says, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. What does that tell you? It means that God is the seeker. It means that He's going out, even though people's backs are turned, He's the one trying to spin them around to get into a relationship with Him. I said, the Lord's still speaking, Here am I! Here am I! To a nation which did not call on My name. And so this becomes Isaiah's commission. When Isaiah says, here am I. A prophetic ministry to render hearts insensitive, ears dull, and eyes dim. That's your job, Isaiah. Now go to it. Understand. Hearts insensitive. He, he is supposed to render these three things. This is his prophetic calling. Render these three, cause these three things to happen. Hearts to be insensitive. The word insensitive, shaman, means to be clogged with fat. Cause their ears to be dull. The word dull there is kabod. It's the word that is often translated glory, but also can mean heavy. And what he means is clogged. Cause their ears to be clogged and heavy. Cause their eyes to be dim. The word dim is shawa, which is interesting. It means smeared or pasted over. Remember that really nasty paste when you were like in kindergarten and they told you not to eat it, but you didn't know any better? And I remember getting that stuff all over everything. It was hair and eyes and the clothes, and it was just that icky, sticky stuff. And that's a great example of, of what this word shavuah means. Eyes pasted over so that they, they can't see through the muck. They can't ear for all the clogged goo in their heads. Their hearts can't perceive or even beat because they're covered with fat. And this is His great commission. Go do this. 
This is a messianic commission, by the way. A messianic commission because it applied in Isaiah's day to the message Isaiah was bringing, but it also would apply in Messiah's day as well. When Jesus came, He would face the same thing. All four Gospels have Jesus repeating this exact prophetic commission of Isaiah. Jesus will quote it. Every single Gospel writer points this out. Why? Because it was on the lips of Jesus and it was significant. And it connects Isaiah to Jesus, the Messianic prophet, with the Messiah. And listen to this, Matthew chapter 13. In fact, why don't you turn over there. Matthew chapter 13, verse 10. And you'll find the other Gospel writers stating the same thing. And you can track this, follow this in your Bibles, but it's Matthew 13, it's Mark 4, Luke 8, John 12. All depict the same or tell the same or similar story. But Matthew chapter 13, verse 10. Watch this. Thinking about the context of Isaiah's commission, listen to what Jesus says. The disciples came and they said to Him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. What is that talking about? Anyone know? Any guesses? Take the risk? What? What? Faith. It's faith. Anyone who has faith is going to be given more faith. But if you don't have faith, even what you have is going to be taken away. We talked about this on Sunday. Faith builds on faith, builds on faith, builds on faith. And the more faith you have, the more faith you'll be given, the more you're going to see, and then you're going to be able to see even more. And that's the dynamic of faith. It is a constant upward growth. If you have faith, you're going to be given more faith. Verse 13, Therefore, I speak to them in parables. Because... While seeing, they do not see. While hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled. Not was fulfilled in Isaiah's day, but is being fulfilled right now. Well, why is the prophecy being fulfilled right then? Because these are the days of Messiah. And Isaiah is the Messianic prophet. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull with their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, Jesus says, because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see and to hear what you hear and did not hear. You know what that means? It makes the apostles greater than Isaiah. It makes you and me here tonight greater than Isaiah. At least in terms of our ability to see and hear. We have been granted a great gift to live in this day in the age of grace with the the seal of the Holy Spirit and the faith that God has poured out on us, we can see and read these things. We hear Isaiah speaking, teaching these things. Isaiah didn't even understand some of what he said. We do. Praise God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this faith. 
Well, doesn't want doesn't God want people to believe? Again, yes. But listen, He won't force it. That's why Jesus spoke in parables. The parables required faith. If you come believing in Me, everything I speak to you, you're going to get it. If you come as a critic, if you come as an enemy, if you come in rebellion, all these things that I say, you're not going to understand them. They won't get in. The word spoken and heard and believed, that's the key. Paul said in Romans 10.17, faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Now go back to Isaiah. How is he supposed to fulfill this commission? Because it's a weird one. It's a challenging one. I want you to render the hearts of the people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. And my first question is different than Isaiah's. His we'll get to in just a second. My question would be, how do I do that, Lord? Well, it's very simple. Preach the Word. That's it. You want to render people's eyes as dim and their ears as heavy and their hearts as insensitive? Preach the Word. Just preach the Word. It has a twofold effect on people, and I have seen it. I have seen it take place. The word preached either softens the heart of faith, bringing clarity and, and vision and even more faith, or it hardens the heart that's rebellious. That's a very simple thing. You give someone the word, and if they reject it, the heart's hard. And if they receive it, the heart is soft. The Lord, in essence, is simply saying to Isaiah, I want you to go preach my word. And in so doing, you're going to render their hearts insensitive, their ears dull, and their eyes dim. Because the heart is hard. Isaiah will say in chapter 8, verse 20, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. There's no light. They can't see where they're headed. And Paul said in Romans 9, verse 5, it is not as though the word of God has failed... For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but, quote, through Isaac your descendants will be named. By the way, there is a single verse that undercuts all of Islam right there. Note that, Romans chapter 9, verse 7, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but, quote, through Isaac your descendants will be named. Not through Ishmael. Ishmael is where the Muslims believe their tie is. But it's not, the promise wasn't just Abraham and then whoever. It was Abraham through Isaac, through Jacob, through Judah, through Jesus. Paul goes on and says, It is not the children of the flesh who are children of God. It is the children of the promise that are regarded as descendants. So what does all that mean? It means when the word is received in faith, there is vision. There is clear hearing. There is a beating heart. But when the word is rejected without faith, then the heart is cold, the eyes are blind, the ears can't see. Verse 11. Then I said, so here's Isaiah's question, Lord, how long? It's a question of compassion. He's thinking about his people. How long is this supposed to go on? How long for their ears to be closed and eyes closed and their hearts shut down? How long? Listen to the answer. Until cities are devastated and without inhabitant. Houses are without people and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it 
and it will again be subject to burning, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. Okay, there are a few things in here to understand. The Lord responds to Isaiah saying, this message must continue and must be preached until the people of Israel drink the full cup of defeat. This message has to continue until they completely fall into desolation and even banishment from the land until the people are a people in exile. That's number eight. Again, if you're following these things, a people in exile. And the message truly would go on, even after Isaiah's death. He would preach his whole entire life, but it wouldn't end. This this how long question would not be answered, not yet. He'll preach his whole life, he will die a martyr, probably at the hands of Manasseh, remember, sawed in half. And the message would continue to be preached via Nahum and Zephaniah and Habakkuk and Jeremiah. Until finally, in 586 B.C., the temple is burned, Judah falls and they're carried off into captivity. But note this, he says, yet there will be, in verse 13, a tenth portion in it. That's fulfilled perfectly in the exile. There was about about a tenth of the people of Israel, of the Jewish people, left in the land. 2 Kings 25.12 The captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. 2 Kings 25.22 says, As for the people who were left in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon had left, he appointed Gedaliah the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, over them. So there were people left in the land. And that's important to note. Tour guides will tell you this in Israel. They will remind you that since the days of Moses and Joshua, when the Jewish people first came back into the promised land, there has never been, in all that history, there has never been a single time where there was not a Jewish presence in the land. And God says here, a tenth portion, for all this desolation, for all the calamity coming, a tenth portion will remain in the land. Note also, though, He says... Tragically, in verse 13, and it will again be subject to burning. It's an indication that for the Jews, Babylon would not be the last desolation. That it would continue. The desolation of the land after AD 70 was absolutely striking. In fact, it became so bad, it became so so wiped out. Mark Twain wrote an interesting book, if you ever want to read some Twain that's a little different for him. He wrote the book, Innocence Abroad. And it's about his travels. He took a, a six months or a year and he traveled the world and he ended up in the Holy Land as part of a, a focus. It's where he wanted to end up going and all kinds of expectations of what they would see there and what that experience would be like. Listen to what Mark Twain wrote. This is in 1867. He called it a desolate country whose soil is rich enough but is given over wholly to weeds. A silent, mournful expanse. A desolation. We never saw a human being on the whole route. Hardly a tree or a shrub anywhere. Even the olive tree and the cactus, those fast friends of a worthless soil, had almost deserted the country. How did God describe what the country of Israel would be? A desolation. And it was. What makes visiting Israel so stunning today is to see how different it is from even Mark Twain's description just over a hundred years, a little over a hundred years ago. Amazing. 150 years, whatever it is. 1867, a desolate land. And now when you go back, it is fruitful again. And there is vegetation. And there is 
great achievement. There's a lot going on. God is reviving His land. But there would always be that tenth portion in it. It would again be subject to burning. Third thing, just to note here, the last line, the holy seed is its stump. And I really like that. The holy seed is the stump. A seed emerges here. That's number nine in your notes. What is this holy seed? What's he talking about? Well, in the context, you might be tempted to say it's the remnant of Israel. It's that tenth portion. It's those who... There will always be a presence. There will always be a remnant of the Jews. And to a degree, you're right. It does, at one level, speak of the remnant of Israel that's going to survive all these things. But they have to survive because of the more significant meaning behind the holy seed that is the stump. It speaks of the human lineage of the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. This is talking about Messiah... And Isaiah is about to get very messianic. The doctrine of the Holy Seed, it's apparent in all of Isaiah's prophecies throughout the book. It comes up again and again and again, going all the way back to Abraham and all the way forward to Christ Himself. Genesis 22.18 In your seed, God tells Abraham, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed My voice. Now the seed of Abraham, that would be the Jewish people, correct? Galatians 3.16 Paul says, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Paul says, Christ. The Holy Seed is Jesus. This is significant right here. Because implying the remnant of Israel, but speaking more clearly of the Redeemer Himself, of Jesus Christ, Isaiah now introduces the next section of the book. The next five chapters, chapter 7 through 12, and we'll move quickly. We'll get through them tonight. I'm kidding. (laughs) But the next section of this book is called the book of Emmanuel. Because from chapter 7 through chapter 12, we're going to hear a lot about this holy seed. We're going to hear a lot about Emmanuel. A child is born to us. A son is given to us. The book of Emmanuel, chapters 7 through 12. And now quickly, I do want to point a couple more things out tonight. We jump from Uzziah in chapter 6, the year of Uzziah's death. We jump now past his son, Yotam, who was an okay king. But we get to the next guy who is terribly wicked, and you know his name, Ahaz, the third king of Isaiah's prophetic ministry. And we jump to this because of the focus of the next five chapters. It is the Holy Seed, Emmanuel. So Isaiah is writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He concludes this vision and commission with the Holy Seed, and he goes right on into talking about the next story where the Holy Seed is proclaimed. And we talked about that on Sunday. If you missed that, go and listen to the, to the teaching online. But we have here the story of wicked King Ahaz. You remember the story that along with all of Judah, he's shaking in fear and distress, resin. The king of Aram and, and Pikachu, the king of Israel, are both coming down against him. And Ahaz doesn't believe it. Ahaz won't, won't deal with it. And, and so the Lord sends Isaiah to Ahaz with a message of comfort and peace. Hang in there. I've got your back. All I need you to do is believe me. In fact, just trust me. And Ahaz wouldn't and say, well, then ask for a sign. I'll prove myself to you. Which is remarkable, by the way. Think about that. The God of all glory and omnipotence and wonder and splendor 
says, you don't believe me? Well, how can I prove it to you? I mean, he is really bending over backwards here to help Ahaz out. Ahaz won't do it. No, no, I would not ask the Lord for a sign of any kind. You know, this feigned religiosity, this pompous arrogance, and God gets angry. God says, fine, you won't ask me for a sign. I'm going to give a sign anyway. I'm going to give a big, massive, huge sign for idiot kings like you, actually beyond you, to the whole house of David, I'm going to give a sign. And that brings us to verse 14. See, I told you we move real quickly here. Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son, and she will call His name Emmanuel, God with us. And if you didn't hear this on Sunday, I'm not sure which service I shared this in. It's kind of getting confusing for me these days. But if you didn't hear this, when He says you shall call His name Emmanuel, someone asked me on Sunday, when was Jesus ever called Emmanuel? In the same way that He's called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's called Emmanuel. These are all names ascribed to the character and the person of Jesus Christ. It wasn't on His birth certificate. You know, Yeshua Emmanuel the first. It's just Jesus. But He is called Emmanuel. We called Him Emmanuel tonight as we were singing and worshiping Him. And so this, this whole vision, this sign for the house of Israel, we talked about it on Sunday, but I mentioned on Sunday the next two verses were problem verses for some. Let's look at them now. Verse 15. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. By the way, the word enough is added in there. So you can just line it out if you want to because it's not in the original Hebrew, but the, the implication is still the same. For the boy will know enough, also added, to refuse evil and to choose good, and the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. So he will eat curds and honey at the time he knows to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. And the problem is that this implies that this boy, this Emmanuel, will at some time not know. He has to learn the good and evil thing. He has to come to that, what we might call the age of accountability, to where he understands the right and the wrong. And that trips some folks up. Now understand, first of all, this is fulfilled in Jesus, even these two verses. In the times when Jesus was born, it says, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. And when Jesus came, truly, both the land that was Israel and the land that was Aram of the Aramaeans were both completely forsaken. Did not exist as nations at all anymore. Completely gone. They were desolate lands in Jesus' day. But know this, the King James translation is slightly different and it looks to be a little more accurate. Isaiah 7.16 in the King James says, The land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. Which means, it may also indicate that Ahaz abhorred, hated the land of Israel and his own land, the land of Judah. He abhorred it by his own wickedness, by his own evil. And if that's the case, if the two kings being talked about here is the king of Israel and the king of Judah, truly, in the days of Jesus, neither Israel nor Judah had a king. So it was prophetically fulfilled by Messiah. It describes the day, the times of Jesus when He came. But here's the challenge. Emmanuel 
It's just so human. He's so human. And people, remember, people struggle with the human side of Jesus. He's just too human. He's either too human to be to be Messiah or He's too godly to be human. How can He be both God and man? It's that whole tension in understanding His character. Isaiah prophesies He would eat curds and honey. Does that bother anybody? I just want to get a head count here. Who is bothered by the fact that Jesus would eat curds and honey? No one. Well, that's interesting. It should bother you. If the other part of the verse bothers you, this part should bother you because does God need food? I mean, if Jesus is God, God in the flesh, what's He eating curds and honey for? What's He need them for? Does God need food? He does if He's in a human body. Keep that thought. But it also tells us He would learn to refuse evil and to choose good. Does God need food? Apparently, does God learn? If God needs food in a human body, then when He was in a human body, yes, the humanity of Jesus learned. He was human. He was born an infant. He learned how to walk. It wasn't like the day after Christmas he hopped up and began running around playing with his new toys. <laughs> Sorry, it was kind of a weird... Anyway. It's not that, you know, three days out of the womb, he's running a triathlon. He learned how to walk. He learned how to talk. He didn't roll over there in the manger and go, this hay's a little uncomfortable, Ma. He learned in the human body. Luke tells us, Luke 2.52, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And you know what that tells us? The Gospel writers didn't have any problem with this. It's only us 2,000 years later where we try to pontificate God versus man and figure it all out. That we go, oh, that's really weird. No. He was in a human body. He lived as a man. Therefore, he increased in wisdom and stature. Luke saw it. The apostles saw it. No problem. They didn't see Jesus as being in this constant inner turmoil. Am I man? Am I God? What do I choose? Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. That Greek word, kanuo. Emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Ironside puts it this way. As a babe, as a youth, and as a man, the humanity of our Lord was exactly like that of other people. One exception, he didn't sin. Otherwise, he was just like us just like us, but but did not choose to sin. Hebrews 2.17 And by the way, this is really good news and I hope you don't miss this. He had to be made like His brethren in all things so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Why? Why did He have to be human and God? So He could rightly represent us before God as our true kinsman redeemer. 
walking in flesh just like us, so that when He comes before God just like us, it's not that He would understand better as much as we would. We could say, yes, Jesus is our man. Jesus is our man. He gets me. When I'm tempted, He knows what that feels like. (gasps) Jesus could be tempted. Well, yeah, but He didn't do it. He chose right. But He was in a human body. His humanity, when being tempted by the devil, the devil tempted Him with everything that His humanity would have said. That would be something that would interest me. And yet, what did Jesus do? He just quoted Deuteronomy to the devil and took care of that, didn't He? Hebrews 4.15, and this is great news for us, tells us we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. You want to know one of the weakest moments of Christ was right there in the garden. In fact, the dichotomy is amazing. In the Garden of Gethsemane, He was at His weakest and He was at His strongest. At His weakest in His flesh, weeping and crying out, bleeding drops of blood in His stress and His horror at the prospect of taking on the sin of the world. But in His divinity saying, yet not as I will, but as you will. Absolutely faithful. Perfect to the task, to His commission. This is Jesus. Fully human, fully God, Emmanuel, God with us. Now Isaiah's prophecy to Ahaz and Judah continues. Let me just read out the end of this. The Lord will bring on you, verse 17, on your people and on your father's house such days as have never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah, that is the king of Assyria. I'm going to bring Assyria on you. He specifically tells them ahead of time. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the remotest part of the rivers of Egypt. Because the fly in the Nile Delta was such an annoying creature, and that's a picture of Egypt there. And I'll whistle for the bee that is in the land of Assyria because of the sting of the bee and the brutality of the Assyrians. They will all come and settle on steep ravines and on the edges of the cliffs and on the thorn bushes and on all the watering places. In that day the Lord will shave with a razor, hired from regions beyond the Euphrates, that is, with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the legs. Any of you guys ever shaved your legs? I'm just curious. You have, Dave. Okay, I don't want to know why, but... That just seems to me to be one of the most awful things you ladies have to endure, and I just want you to know that. My heart goes out to you right there. And it will also remove the beard. Now understand, an Israelite man's beard was his glory. This, his religion was in his beard. <laughs> he had a nice full beard. Righteous dude. You know, I mean, that, they live for that. I hate it. I can't grow one. I've tried. I just get specks. Isaiah is saying, you are going to be shamed by the Assyrian razor. That's the picture God is painting here. And now in that day... Verse 21, a man may keep alive a heifer and a pair of sheep. And because of the abundance of the milk produced, he will eat curds. For everyone that is left within the land will eat curds and honey. This, by the way, is not a sign of plenty. It is a sign of want. They came into the land saying, look, a a land flowing with milk and honey. 
Yeah, but what they brought with them were their animals and their herds and their flocks and their sheep and they would plant vineyards and you know there were, there were grapes the size of basketballs in the land. I mean it was a fruitful land at the time. This is a description. Curds and honey is a description of a land in want. You may keep alive a heifer, but your entire herd will be wiped out. You'll be lucky if you have one cow to draw some milk for your kids. You can go out in the wild and you can collect honey out of the logs and out of the trees, but that's the best you're going to have, curds and honey. And note this, gang. Remember what he said back in verse 15? Emmanuel would eat curds and honey. Meaning? Meaning the days of Emmanuel would be days of desolation and want and disturbance in the land as well. As they were in Jesus' day. Verse 23. And it will come about in that day that every house where there used to be a thousand vines valued at a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. People will come there with bows and arrows because all the land will be briars and thorns. As for all the hills which used to be cultivated with the hoe, you will not go there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place for pasturing oxen and for sheep to trample. A desolate land. And this begins the book of Emmanuel. Interesting. He starts the book of Emmanuel with with the wonderful Emmanuel, God with us prophecy, Isaiah 7.14. We love that verse, but the whole chapter, that verse, that verse is couched in despair. The verse of the coming of Emmanuel is laid out in times of, of bare minimum. Of ruin. Emmanuel would come when the land was devastated by Assyria, sacked by Babylon, and ruined over 400 years of brutal external forces and internal unbelief. This is the state, listen, this is the state of the land when Emmanuel comes. And I want to end on that because that's always the state of the land when Emmanuel comes. It's always the state of man, the state of woman, when Emmanuel comes. He doesn't come into a cleaned up land that is flourishing and fruitful and doing wonderfully. He comes to people who are broken and hurting and washed up and desolate. People whose lives are are lacking answers. Emmanuel comes. He comes in the nick of time, at the right time, and into the mess of our lives, we hear angelic voices saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth... Peace among men with whom He is pleased. And why is that? Why does Emmanuel always come into the mess? It's because God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God, You are so good. And I thank You and praise You for coming into the mess of my life. Lord Messiah, for being Messiah in my mess for coming into the place of despondency and despair and desolation, even when I didn't realize how bad I had it. Lord, when I, like Israel, was was singing out, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die, and not recognizing how desperate I was, thank You for coming. Thank You for being here. For those who are lost and hurting and, and aching in life. And Father, give us the encouragement as You gave Isaiah to preach the Word. It's not the response that we must be concerned with. It's just faithfulness to preach the Word. 
and to tell all those around us because we don't know, Lord, who may be in this very place of despair and who by hearing the name of Jesus will immediately be saved. So we pray, come Emmanuel, come into our language, come into our hearts, come into our lives, come into our discussions with people, come into this season. Change lives, Lord Jesus, as you do so wonderfully. Change us. Lord, here we are, send us in Jesus' name. Amen. And I was going to do chapter 8, but we'll save that one. God bless you all.